millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning. It's Wednesday, 2nd of November. On the Michael Reed Show this morning, the Mark McSharry saga reaches its finale. A new survey reveals all about nursing homes, the Kerry priest and the apology from the Catholic Bishop of Kerry. Are we facing a frightening wave of delayed cancer diagnosis? And does the Taoiseach know something we don't when it comes to a possible deal in the North? If you want to contact us this morning, we are on 086 1800 658. You're with Alan Cantwell through until 11 o'clock. Just to let you know, I know we uh, finished somewhat abruptly yesterday because we ran out of time, but there's a significant number of comments in relating to matters which we raised yesterday around the numbers of uh, Ukrainian refugees coming into the country. We'll be reading those texts over the next two hours. But first this morning, TD Mark McSharry has confirmed he's leaving the Fianna Fáil party. The Sligo Leitrim deputy has told the Irish Independent it's because of Micheál Martin's handling of a bullying complaint made against him by a party councillor. Deputy McSharry claims the complaint is highly politically motivated. This morning to discuss this and other matters, Philip Ryan, political editor with the Irish Independent, joins us and Philip has uh, got that exclusive in relation to uh, Deputy McSharry splashed in the Independent this morning. Philip, good morning, thanks for joining us. Before we get into the, the meat of this story, can you take me back to the point when he resigned the party whip and secondly, where does the genesis of this story lie? Mm. So we go back to September 2021, in fact, for, for when he took the decision, Mark McSherry, to resign from Fianna Fáil. And that was on the back of a motion of confidence that was tabled in Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney, who people might remember was at the centre of this controversy about his, his, his own officials in the Department of uh, Foreign Affairs celebrating um, during COVID, during when there was quite strict restrictions in place, um, celebrating the fact that they had mm-hmm. won a seat on the UN Security Council. That became a whole uh, big fiasco. Simon Coveney couldn't get his story straight for one reason or another, and a motion was tabled in him. Mark McSherry said he couldn't stand by it, and he resigned the party in, 
um, leaving saying there was no there was no debate in the party and backbenchers couldn't get a say on whether the party should support Mr. McSharry or, or sorry support Mr. Coveney or and, and what, what might spark the memories of people there was the famous photographs of officials from the department I think they were celebrating in the Department of Foreign Affairs in Ivy House and they went viral as well so that compounded the problems he faced that's the one yeah exactly so he's gone there and, uh, and he had left the party and there was no sign of him returning but then there was another um, motion of confidence in the government um, um, in the summer of uh, just gone. And Martin McSharry supported the government that instantly said he didn't want an election. But then after that, he also issued a statement saying he had secured um, commitments from the government, the Taoiseach and the Health Minister, uh, Stephen Donnelly, that the cardio- cardiology services in Sligo University Hospital would be enhanced um, because he supported the government. And Naturally enough, he wants to take credit for this and he issued a statement and it was all over the local media. The teacher himself denied there was any side deals with uh, his former deputy on this issue. And then, if we're moving then into the, this um, alleged bullying complaint, this is at the time when local Fianna Fáil councillor went on his local radio station, um, Ocean FM, to discuss, to discuss um, the cardiologist cardiology services and in his contribution he essentially noted that look there was no commitment really made and there's two sides of the story and lots of people are talking it up. Mark McSharry felt that this was um, somewhat an attack or downplaying what, what he had achieved and sent the first message which was um, quite colourful in language let's say. Very colourful. But what strikes me about this, and maybe I'm being a cynic or a conspiracy theorist here, Mm. that you've been around this game, as have I. These sort of robust conversations happen. And, you know, this is pretty tame in terms of what goes on between deputies and councillors and ministers and government officials. It strikes me that there may be something more going on aside from this spat that has precipitated him to, to leave the party. I would imagine Michal Martin's happy to see the back of him. Well, I'm sure Michal Martin probably is at this stage, but he, he, could, he could say he's happy to see the back of him in the one sense that he doesn't have to deal with some dissent within his parliamentary party. But at the same time, it is a scene of false seat over in uh, Connacht Ulster in a constituency or an area of the country which uh, they are struggling at the moment and are below their national poll results in that area. And obviously the McSharry name has, has yeah. done quite well over the years and, and have held seats there throughout various um tenures throughout uh, with Fianna Fáil being inside and outside government. So what of um, McSharry's political future now? Yeah, it's hard to tell. He says in his uh, resignation uh, statement that he is going to continue on as an independent member of the Dáil to represent the people of Sligo and Leitrim and and that is his plan um, for the time being. It's not exactly clear where he goes from after that, where he contests the next election under as an independent or if there happens to be a change of leadership within Fianna Fáil, does he then um, rejoin the party and support whoever that might be. Now, just on that particular point, we're seeing the transition in terms of uh, Tishig uh, over the coming weeks, albeit it's been delayed slightly for, for uh, mm. reasons which are out of the control of the government. They decided to go one direction in Europe, but we'll get into that at a later point. But where does that leave things then for Micheál Martin? Do you think that he will stand off the stage, he'll take foreign affairs for now and then bow out? I don't see Michal Martin being a, a politician who believes his his time in, in national politics is, is coming to an end with this changeover. I, I very much doubt that Michal Martin would step aside. Definitely he won't be stepping aside before any transition um, between the Taoiseach and Tonish's office. And over the coming two years, um, ahead of the next election, 
I think it's very unlikely that he will. Um, this is his life. It's always been. He's been in Dáil almost 40 years himself. Uh, personally, he was entered as a very young TD and um, he has this, a lot of support within his party to keep going as well. As, as much as the polls show um, he, he hasn't done, he, they aren't doing quite well, Fianna Fáil, within the, his parliamentary party, he does have a good rump of support. And that hasn't been tested through a, a, a confidence motion in his in his leadership. And that's even more less likely to happen now that Mark McSharry is no longer in the party. But as you know, and as history has taught us, all political f- uh, careers ultimately end in failure and it's knowing when to get out. Now, Micheál Martin, the perception is that he, he, you know, steadied the ship through COVID. He did well in terms of the economy and he's got quite a good political legacy there. And perhaps the best thing from his perspective is just to walk away quietly. But you don't think it'll happen? Yeah, well, certainly, I know Enda Kenny uh, saw it that way, and that, that's what he did. He, he brought the country back onto its, uh, up off its knees, let's say, um, following the financial crash. And while there was a lot of pressure on him to leave and the polls weren't good, um, he, he stood firm. And But he, in the end, he decided his own time to leave. Um, and Leo Radker, who was obviously one of the instigators to try get him out, um, saw a government or saw Fine Gael in the next election where they got one of their lowest polls in the history of the party. Before I let you go, um, Philip, can I just talk to you a little bit about uh, the situation facing Sinn Féin in relation to comments made by Ono Brin concerning the chief economist within the Department of Finance and the distancing to an extent that the party has been undergoing in the past 48 hours around those comments. I think that we see um, Kathleen Funchian at the weekend more or less saying that is not the view that we espouse in this party. They seem to have gone very quiet on this and it's unlike Sinn Féin to be quite quiet in relation to matters pertaining to uh, publicity, shall we say? Oh, well, I would argue it's the opposite. When Sinn Féin don't like a bit of news, they go very quiet and uh, disappear almost. And and then that that regularly happens, and it's a strategy they've been using um, more and more over recent times. If they don't, if there's tricky issues in in the national discourse, whether it be around former councillors involved in gangland uh, murders or situations regarding the, the leader's uh, property and, and now this um, Ono Brin who, who, who has to be said is not afraid to face the media and regularly does and sometimes he's the only person mm. Sinn Féin has. They usually them. send him out on the plinth when things are getting tricky for them. Exactly, he is, he is. And look, in this instance I think uh, Deputy O'Brien will, will, will note that look, he, he made a stupid comment. He was probably... Um, he was in a fest. He was at a music festival. It's not the typical venue for politics. It's probably more of a relaxed setting. There might have been a younger audience there, and he was trying to, to play up his credentials as uh, the voice of the youth. So he's coming out w- with language like this. I, th- I think it's more concerning that uh, that his partner, um, Liam Boylan, suggested that he didn't even say these co- these comments um, when he clearly did. Um, but he, but it's uh, look, O'Brien has owned up to him. He, he, he seems to realise that it was a silly thing to say and he's walked it back and Sinn Féin will not be standing over um, any any proposals to start sacking civil servants, I think. OK, Philip Ryan, political editor with the Irish Independent who has an exclusive on that Mike Sherry story this morning in the paper. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. The Minister for Foreign Affairs will seek clarity today on whether there will be elections in Northern Ireland before Christmas. Simon Coven is due to meet with the Northern Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris in Belfast. He confirmed his legal obligation to trigger fresh elections after the political parties again failed to form a power-sharing government last week. However, Mr Heaton-Harris has failed so far to set a date. 
Well, joining us uh, this morning to try and bring some clarity to this is Brian Feeney, columnist with the Irish News and political commentator. Brian, good morning. Thanks for joining us. And um, perhaps you can give us some form of insight into this as to why, number one, Heaton Harris has not called an election. And number two, do you get a sense that there may be some sort of back channel negotiations going on that could potentially precipitate a deal that will not require elections? Well, there is no clarity at the moment. It was expected after Heaton Harris met the parties in, in the North yesterday that there might have been some announcement or some statement, but he he, he didn't uh, issue one. Um, there is speculation that he was going to call an election last Friday, as he had repeatedly promised to do or threatened to do, depending on, on what, what way you take it or which party responds. Uh, the speculation is that he was overruled by Rishi Sunak, um, who is anxious for protocol negotiations to continue between uh, James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, and Maros Shevkovich, the EU Vice President. And that these negotiations had made progress at a technical level and if an election were called, then the protocol negotiations may have had to be paused because uh, it, during those negotiations, uh, they would have been used as part of the election campaign by the DUP in particular. Mm-hmm. So today we may get clarity because uh, it may be possible that Heaton Harris is able to use Simon Coveney's visit to say the Irish government doesn't want an election, so we agree with him. Uh, but we shall see what the outcome is this afternoon. Now, yesterday, Heaton Harris engaged uh, in a degree of shuttle diplomacy with the party leaders in the North. Um, we got the usual rhetoric from the political parties post those conversations, but you would expect that anyway. Is there any sense that maybe some progress or some breathing space may have been uh, achieved during those conversations yesterday? Not really. He didn't. Re- he 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 didn't respond to their requests about a date for an election or what his intentions were. He was talking about uh, budget redevelopments that he might try to find some way to fund the north of Ireland during this sort of limbo period because there's no assembly, there are no ministers, and civil servants are only allowed to spend 90% of the budget without a minister to instruct them to spend the rest of it. Um, So there'll have to be something done about that. And that's the sort of stuff they were talking about yesterday. He also raised the question of payment for um, assembly members. And this is something that uh, the Alliance Party in particular is very keen to deal with. Um, They believe that assembly members shouldn't be paid um, if they're not doing their job, basically, mm-hmm. um, which is what they have been doing. I listened to Geoffrey Donaldson, and as I'm sure you have as well, and it's not the first time that he has been somewhat staunch in his position and is not for moving, but ultimately, you know, he has done it in the past. So is he just jockeying for position, do you think, at this particular point? And is there a sense that he may actually move? No, there is no there is no prospect whatsoever about of the DUP moving, and and this is one of the, the arguments that both Simon Coveney and Michael Martin have made to the British that calling an election will not solve the problem. It may actually make it worse because it, it will increase polarisation. It will damage more moderate parties, particularly the Ulster Unionist Party and the SDLP, as they are crushed between the DUP and Sinn Féin. 
and that it, it will absolutely sort of calcify the position here and the DUP have no intention of going back until there's something to say. They say there has to be decisive action on the protocol and they're not going back. They've, they've really sort of dug their heels into this uh, and, and um, it's very difficult to see how they can unwind from the position they're in. So within this then there is the situation where there is no governance per se as it should be in the north there are implications for that and what have those implications been how have we seen them manifest themselves on day-to-day living in northern ireland well one of the one of the most obvious things is the the energy crisis um elsewhere in in the uk people are getting uh 400 pounds uh towards their energy bill from from the government here no one knows when it will come. And the talk is that it may well be now January, although people had thought it would be uh, this month, November. Um, so there's £400 just not available uh, for every household in the north, um, simply because there is no minister in Stormont to sign it off or to receive money from Westminster. Westminster sends money across to Stormont and the Stormont ministers mm-hmm. administer that money. But there are no ministers, so no one can, admit no one can actually hand the money out. Um, there's a, a, a huge crisis in the health service, enormous waiting lists, uh, and again, there is no budget to deal with it. Uh, because they couldn't agree a budget at Stormont because the DUP walked out. Do you get a sense that there's nervousness manifesting itself in the North because of this political vacuum, that that vacuum may be filled by, you know, extremes on either side? Well, there there is a vacuum, but... It's it's a political crisis rather than a security crisis. Um, but there, could potentially is, escalate to a security crisis? No, no those days are gone. Okay. There are no um, sort of uh, organised violent threats or no one has fired a shot and no one is going to fire a shot. The problem is for for loyalists who are particularly concerned about the protocol and have been talking about dire consequences and so on, they're they're short of a target. Um, I mean, who do they who do they direct their uh, terrorism at? Uh, there was talk last week, and this is this is uncorroborated, that they were threatening action against uh, the Irish government mm-hmm. um, because of their interference in the north. Um, but as I say, that is just rumour. There's, there's there's no corroboration of that. So where do you see this ending, or is it possible even to paint a picture of the future of the political landscape of Northern Ireland, given the entrenched position, particularly of the DUP? It, the DUP position is very difficult, and they're, they're boycotting of the institutions really does threaten the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, they, they began to do this. They boycotted the North-South Ministerial Council in October 2021, and then increased their boycott in February this year. So there are no institutions operating in the North. And it really is uh, time for the two governments to step up and come together in the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference. And that's a a forum which was deliberately designed at the time of the Good Friday Agreement for just these circumstances when the institutions collapse. And the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference 
the Good Friday Agreement stipulates that they should meet regularly and often. And that's really what is available to the two governments. Uh, But behind the scenes, we have negotiations on the protocol. And the technical negotiations have made a lot of progress since September uh, between officials and between uh, the between the EU and the UK people um, about things like um, data transfer and uh, quick lanes like green lanes and red lanes through checkpoints and so on. But so far there's been no political input and calling an election will damage that. It's quite likely the Irish government will be saying to or Simon Cody will be saying to Heaton Harris, this is an opportunity and we have six weeks of intense negotiations. We may be able to come up with a compromise that will resolve the issues on the protocol, but an election will push that to the side. Well, that prompts my next question, and that is, if I were somebody who was not happy with the status quo, such as the DUP, you would be pushing for that election to kick the can further down the road. And is there... um, an opportunity for somebody like the D, for a party like the DUP, to take legal action against the Northern Ireland Secretary because he has not adhered to what his legal requirements are around calling an election. They, they could, but they would fail. That's um, been done before because remember the assembly has collapsed on several yeah. occasions before, and there were attempts. There were court cases. Peter Robinson went to court some years ago, and the court, the High Court, declined to intervene. They said that the uh, the Secretary of State must call an election as soon as practicable, but they didn't want to interfere because it was a political decision. Now, what the Secretary of State he must call an election by Monday, um, if it's going to be one before Christmas. If he doesn't. He can simply bring in his proposals for a budget for the north of Ireland and a one-line bill or a one-line amendment to that bill which allows him to postpone the election. So the British can just push through literally in two days a bill, they've done this before, a bill to legally postpone elections until the Secretary of State decides. Finally, before we leave it, Brian, would a change of leadership within the DUP ultimately change the position or do they remain steadfast all for one on this? Yeah, they are steadfast and one of the reasons they're steadfast is over 80% of their voters' opinion polls show support, over 80% support their position. Very good. Brian Feeney, columnist with the Irish News and political commentator. Thank you for joining us this morning. Just before we press on, and I don't want to run out of time again because I did promise you at the top of the programme we try and get through as many as these uh, comments which were left over from yesterday. Uh, the first one was in relation to legislation which was enacted around the sale of turf, smoky coals and wet wood. We had um, Deputy Michael Fitzmaurice, Independent TD, on with us to discuss that yesterday. And uh, one letter email in fact which came in from Danny it says I'm disgusted listening to Michael Fitzmaurice's outrageous comments on his support for damaging toxic turf burning pollution on the health of neighbours he maliciously called people with very serious concerns about their health and well-being snitches and nuisance callers for reporting someone for burning turf emitting toxic fumes that damage their lives. Why does he think people burning turf have a right to damage the health of their neighbours? We all have a right to our own good health. As someone who makes part of his life and his living 
from the extraction of turf and destruction of our environmentally necessary bogs. He needs to pull his neck in and think a bit more before he supports damaging people's health and lives. The welfare payments as well were also up for discussion yesterday. Aileen says there's no change or double payment for anyone on long-term illness benefit. We've been ignored. I have arthritis and I'm on illness benefits since last March. It can be a struggle at times. Read the children's allowance. Angela says that children's allowance shouldn't be cut off at 18 when parents are trying to put children through college and post-leaving cert courses. They still need the financial assistance in these cases. In relation to refugees, Paddy in Kell says we have a responsibility to make sure that we are not overstretching ourselves too much by taking in too many people. We need to ensure that we can look after the people already here as well as those we've taken in for sanctuary. They're the comments for now. We'll have more to come, but we need to take a break there. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. 15% of nursing home residents described their food as fair to poor. Hickwick carried out a national survey of 718 residents across 53 nursing homes between March to May of this year. 60% of residents reported a very good overall experience. However, almost 10% rated their overall experience as fair to poor. CEO of Hickwick, Angela Fitzgerald, says there's some room for improvement in staff support and choices available to residents. The first survey of its kind into people's experiences in nursing homes has found that the residents would like to be more involved in decisions that affect their lives, including care planning. Joining us this morning is Ty Daly, Chief Executive of Nursing Homes Ireland. Ty, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Look, food is food. One man's tripe is another man's caviar. So, I mean, you know, that's a subjective matter. But getting back to something like uh, a concern that residents have about interaction with staff members, about their welfare, about having somebody to talk to, that needs to be looked at, does it not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was a very, uh, I think, an uh, important piece of research uh, because it's the voice of residents. It's not Ty Gailey speaking or indeed Hickwa speaking. It's the residents themselves. And that's why it's so critical, um, because it's listening and capturing the voice of residents. And yeah, I mean, look, like any facet of life, there's, of course, areas for improvement. But I think the underlying message here is a very, very positive one. And it dispels many of the myths, I would argue, around nursing home care. Ninety percent of, of residents had a good or a very good experience. I mean, that, you know, is, is very reassuring um, and, and very, very positive. And it's a, it is a measure of the commitment and the professionalism of the staff across the sector. Um, but as you said, you know, like every facet of life, as I've said, there's always room for improvement. And, and I suppose that's the one of the learnings, if you like, from this survey for, for both public, private and voluntary. Nurses, okay. This is across all the sector. OK, Ty, can I ask you about those who participated in the survey and the context of patients or um, those in nursing homes who may have cognitive difficulties, who may not have been able to participate in the, the, this survey? And there would be a sizable number of that cohort and they presumably have not been part of it. They've been excluded. Yeah. Uh, well, when the survey was conducted by HICWA, so it, and, and under the national, um, you know, care experience, so there was a there was over, uh, you know, I think over a thousand residents identified, and of those seven hundred and eighteen, a total of sixty eight percent took part in face to face interviews. So, it, you know, it, it was uh, robust. Um, it does. It was, know, but there was a cohort left out of it because, for obvious reasons, they couldn't participate in it. There is, Alan, but I mean, that's the nature of, of nursing home care. But you also have to take into account there, Alan, that the fact that uh, families uh, and, and friends of, of residents also took part and their experience mirrored that of residents. So 87% of, of families and relatives uh, expressed a view that they were 
very good or good in, in terms of their experience. So there is a consistent team across here. That's not to say that, as I said, there aren't issues to be addressed. There always are in, in healthcare generally. Um, you know, it's a it, you know it's a very individual service, obviously that members are providing and that nursing homes are providing. Uh, but I think it, it is reassuring for for families who have. Uh, loved ones in nursing homes. It's reassuring for us in nursing homes Ireland and indeed the HSE and others that the vast, I mean, 90%, you know, is a very, very positive um, statistic, if you like, in terms of the the positive experience that I've had. It it, it sure is. But however, nonetheless, patients or residents, I beg your pardon, um, want to have an input into their care, want to have an input into, you know, the manner in which things are run. That needs to be looked at. Oh, 100%. And I mean, that's why, you know, under the care welfare regulations and indeed in, in all nursing homes, there is, a, you know, an individualised care plan. But I spoke at the launch yesterday myself and I was making the point that, you know, in Ireland generally, I think people take a, a, some type, some part of an over-paternalistic approach. Uh, so that's a big lesson for all of us, you know, in terms of our daily lives as well, is to, is to discuss with our family members. So if my mother, my father, my brother, my sister was requiring of care, try and put myself in their shoes. Um, and plan ahead and discuss with the resident themselves what their will and preferences are so that each nursing home then can respond to that individual's uh, care needs. Because clearly, and that's why the survey itself is so important, because it's the resident's voice. So there is definitely uh, a message for all of us across society uh, so, so, in, in that. So who should have uh, oversight of that? Let's call it a committee. Should that be internal or should that be an external organisation that is ensuring that what is raised, what is uh, mm. said to be actioned is actually actioned? Uh, look, it's up to each individual nursing home ultimately at the end of the day uh, to take the learnings because this is across all nursing homes. Uh, so some may have uh, had, had a very good score on the food, for example. Others may not have. So clearly that's an area of focus for that individual home. Uh, so I think what we've got to do here, the residents are individuals and we've got to respond to their individual likes, dislikes, will and preferences. And also the nursing homes are individual homes. Um, so there is a responsibility now on all of us collectively but ultimately, it's down to each individual home, whether it's a HSE nursing home, a public home, okay. a private home or a voluntary home. Well, and ultimately, the residents themselves will dictate uh, because all of the nursing homes would have residence counts, for example. So uh, this data and this information will be fed back now to the residents themselves. And that will hopefully enrich uh, that experience for residents. Uh, both now and into the future. Okay, well, perhaps before we leave it, Ty, you can throw some light on this particular statistic, and I was quite surprised by it, that more than one in four relatives and friends, 28.9%, said they do not know how to contact advocacy organisations, rising to 77% of residents. That's quite a stark figure. It is, absolutely. And I suppose historically, and that's why, you know, historically it would have been seen maybe the, uh, the caregiver you know, the nurse, the professional seen as the advocate, uh, whereas what we've moved into over the last number of years across the entire health service, uh, you know, acute hospitals and indeed nursing homes, is the, is the requirement for independent advocacy. So if someone feels they need to raise an issue, that they have assistance and someone to help them and navigate through, you know, for those of us even on the outside, as it were, looking in, it can be very difficult to navigate the health service. So it's important in this case that you would have an independent advocacy organisation and the National Patient Advocacy Service that their role has been extended now to all nursing homes as of yesterday, the 1st of November. So the learnings are being put in place by all of us. Um, we shouldn't be complacent while it's important to celebrate uh, and acknowledge the good 
uh, that has come out of this, and 90% is a, is a, is a very encouraging okay. figure and a very high figure. Tyke, there is always areas for improvement. Tyke, I'm, I'm nearly out of time with this, but I just want you okay. to comment a little bit perhaps on the changes to fair deal in relation to rental income on houses yes. where residents are in, um, in, in, in a home. That's changed. That has to be welcomed, presumably. It is absolutely. I think uh, that that's for two reasons. One is it, it gives the, the the person in the nursing home, you know, greater financial independence um, because it, it it increases their their income as a result of uh, a home that may be rented, and it also potentially uh, increases the availability of rental properties in a very difficult um, property market. So yeah, I mean, uh, there has been some significant changes over the years in terms of uh, business and farming assets. Now, this element of, of rental and the next big issue, obviously, is the whole funding of nursing home care, both now and into the future, because, as you know, uh, quite a number of nursing homes have closed their doors in recent uh, weeks and months as a result of the underfunding. So this is a, a, a challenge for us. We have an ageing population and we need to celebrate and, and plan for that ageing demographic. OK, Tag Daly, Chief Executive of Nursing Homes Ireland. Thank you for joining us. And just in relation to that fair deal, uh, just to... To be, to be very clear what it is, is anyone in a nursing home care supported by the Fair Deal scheme may now have the rental income from their principal private residence assessed at 40% rather than 80% according to the HSE. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. 086 1800 658. That's the number if you want to text or WhatsApp us on the programme this morning. The Taoiseach has told a private party meeting on Friday that Ireland was facing a frightening wave of delayed cancer diagnosis. Michael Martin told the Fianna Fáil meeting that many cancers detected now would not be treatable and that other European countries were facing a similar crisis. Taoiseach's comments came as new figures reveal that monthly cancer referrals from GPs are up by as much as 52% compared to 2019, the last full year before the pandemic hit. Rachel Morrow, Director of Advocacy with the Irish Cancer Society, joins us this morning. Rachel, uh, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Has he hit the mark on this? Is it as bad as he says? Hi, Alan. Um, I'm afraid that it probably is as bad as the Taoiseach is warning. And the Irish Cancer Society, we're glad that he's spoken to his party colleagues about this um, because it needs that level of political attention. It needs to be number one on not just the Fianna Fáil party's agenda, but on every political party agenda. It needs to be top of every cabinet meeting until this gets resolved, until people can be guaranteed timely access to tests and to treatment um, so that they stand the best chance of being diagnosed with cancer as early as possible and then treated um, as soon as they can. And we know that when people do get diagnosed early, they do stand a better chance um, of surviving cancer and having a better quality mm. of life as well. I know some of your listeners will be, you know, they'll have a loved one with cancer um, and they'll be kind of, you know, caring for them. And it's much, you know, it's, it's, it's better for the person, it's better for their family if they get diagnosed early. Now, you see, here's the thing, Rachel. We knew back then during COVID that we were storing up not just this problem in relation to health issues, there was mental health issues as well, many other things that were going on. It was going to come back and haunt us. It has arrived. We have not put in place the necessary funding or resources to deal with this. And testament to that is the length of time it now takes to get a mammogram. You can get one privately, but you'll have to wait privately as well. But to get one publicly is one hell of a wait. Why didn't we anticipate it? Why didn't we put something in place to deal with this? And look, I, I agree with you. I think that like some of the problems are certainly related to COVID. I mean, it's just, you know, it's decimated the health service over the last number of years. But to be truthful, Alan, you know, the, the health service was not best placed 
to deal with the pandemic, we were already um, in a situation where there were long times, long wait times for for diagnostic appointments, and they still exist. They've got worse. Um, so radiology, we know that there's more than two hundred thousand people waiting for a radiology appointment, and because those people haven't been diagnosed with the disease yet, we we don't know um, who has cancer and who doesn't have cancer. So somebody who may not have kind of typical symptoms. Um, of cancer may not be classified as urgent and maybe, you know, a routine appointment um, um, may be advised for them. Um, but in Florida care, there are recommendations on timelines that people should wait. And the reality is that people in Ireland are waiting far, far too long for a diagnostic appointment. And like we spoke about, um, it's necessary for people to get diagnosed as early as possible so that they do have lots of treatment options and, and they have that good quality of life. So, I, like I said, I, I don't think that we were well-placed going into the pandemic. Um, and this needs, like the Taoiseach was saying, it needs a lot of attention um, and it needs kind of like a laser-focused plan on how to, to mitigate his dire predictions because his concerns, there are concerns, they're your concerns, and the people of Ireland need to be assured that they can get timely access to these things. Well, it comes as cold comfort to many people who are listening to this programme this morning that who are in a position that they have not been able to access, number one, a diagnosis, number two, treatment, and it's a dual approach here. You know, we can get diagnosed, but if we don't have the, the facilities to treat people, it's a wasted exercise. I think that um, in the case of cancer, cancer was prioritised um, through, throughout the pandemic. But the, the challenge, of course, was that there's limited capacity um, in the health service. Um, and I suppose, you know, healthcare professionals, they went above and beyond and they still are going above and beyond. Um, but the, the circumstances in which they work um, are very, very challenging. And I think that, you know, one of the solutions that that is being proposed and um, executed is that once people on a public waiting list have waited a period of time for a diagnostic appointment, um, then they might be moved through the NTPF um, to, to get that done privately. Um, but I think that we really need to resource the public system and make sure the public system um, is able to stand um, on its own two feet rather than, you know, putting people into the private okay. system and, and funding it that way. And, and of course, this is not a quick fix solution. There are so many moving parts to this. It will require time and planning in order to put something that is fit for purpose in place and we will continue to see the numbers increasing who are not being diagnosed early and who are not being treated. So with that in mind, is it possible to project or predict what the real consequences of the situation will be in a year's time, in two years' time? We're not great on data in Ireland, as as you know, Alan, but we do have preliminary figures for what happened in 2020. And that's showing that there was a drop um, in cancers diagnosed of around 14%. So we were the number that we would have expected. Um, we didn't hit that number and we were about 14% um, below that figure. Um, and for us in the Cancer Society, that's hugely worrying. Um, that means that there are, like I said earlier, you know, the families listening to, to you and me this morning, um, there might be people at home who do have niggling health concerns and they still haven't gone to see a GP or they're on a, on a waiting list, you know, having done everything right, having gone to their GP um, and now they're on a waiting list. Um, Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So what we're saying is we're encouraging people to go and see their GP. You can call the Irish Cancer Society on 1-800-200-700 and speak to a cancer nurse um, and maybe get some advice about what next steps you should take. Um, and we're there absolutely free of charge. And we're also running um, a health roadshow um, over the, um, the month of November. And we'll be visiting Navantown Centre um, Shopping Centre today and tomorrow. Um, and then we'll be in Dundalk um, Mar- Marshes Shopping Centre on the 23rd and 24th if you want to see a nurse in person. And we'd encourage anyone listening this morning who does have any concerns um, about their health to come and see us. Is there anything that you can say to anybody who's listening to us this morning who's in that position that will bring comfort to them on the basis of, for example, you know, conversations you've had with government, with stakeholders who have given you some sense of optimism that we could see this sorting itself out sooner rather than later? I suppose it is of comfort that, you know, the Taoiseach has raised this. We know that it's a political priority. We know that the politicians are as concerned about this as the Irish Cancer Society. Um, we hope that um, people will be, that the waiting list will be, will be dealt with. Um, I think that the healthcare professionals, they're doing extra clinics, they're working weekends. Um, so it absolutely is a focus. Um, but we would urge anyone who may be like I said, is, is worried about symptoms, maybe they're on a waiting list. If those symptoms have changed, if you have any concerns about them, get back in touch okay. with your GP or call the Irish Cancer Society. Very good. Rachel Morrow, Director of Ad- Advocacy at Bigger Burden with the Irish Cancer Society. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, four out of every ten Garda stations in Ireland recorded an increase in crime last year compared to pre-COVID levels, despite being subject to lockdown restrictions for large parts of the year. An analysis by the Irish Independent of a detailed breakdown of crime figures reveals 40% of Garda stations nationwide recorded more criminal offences in 2021 than in 2019. The last full year, crime rates were unaffected by the COVID-19 pandemic. The number of crimes in 223 of the country's 564 stations last year exceeded the total for 2019, which had the highest annual total recorded in crime in seven years with over a quarter of a million offences. 
Well, joining us this morning to discuss this is Councillor Pio Smith, Labour Councillor and member of the Drogheda Local Policing Forum, also joined by Councillor Alan Laws, Independent Councillor in Navan and member of the Joint Policing Committee, and Councillor Kevin Meehan, Sinn Féin Councillor in Dundalk and JPC member as well. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us this morning. I want to ask each of you individually and keep it as brief as possible why we are at where we are at in relation to crime. Start with you, uh, Councillor Smith. Uh, good morning. Uh, I think the reason why we're, we're, we are where we are is because uh, a number of the uh, methods that we have to address antisocial behaviour aren't fully implemented. And I think that ranges from all of the things that are in the Children's Act right through to uh, ASBOs. And, you know, when you look through the Children's Act, there's about nine or ten different things that we can do to address, uh, you know, youth uh, antisocial behaviour, children antisocial behaviour, and then the ASBOs for, for adults. And very few of them have been implemented in the way that they were actually designed to do. And I think if that was addressed, we would see a significant decrease in antisocial yeah. behaviour. Okay, Councillor Laws, your view on it? Um, look, I, I think the, the, the true uh, method for reducing crime is actually Morgardie. It, it's very simple. Um, but we, we, in need, we have the lowest number of Gardaí uh, ahead of population in the country. And that hasn't been addressed. And if that was addressed, more feet on the street, as was, as was proven in one of the criminal capitals of the world in New York, when they actually had a, a, when they put more people on the street, they put much more police on the street, it did address the situation there in New York. And New York now has turned out very safe. You look at ourselves in comparison to other European countries, uh, our crime rate uh, this year is up at, we're 65th highest in, in, in uh, the world. Spain, Finland, Denmark, they're down to 117, 114. They're doing things right. And it's a combination, uh, like my other colleague said there, of, you know, Morgardi, uh, the community, and parents as well. Uh, parents as well, especially when it comes to antisocial behaviour. Parents have a role to play here. Um, and I think we need to take responsibility as a community for that. Uh, we can't expect the guards to do everything. OK. Councillor uh, Mayne, let me ask you, you to do more. your view, Councillor Mayne. Yeah, I think I think it's a, a number of different things. Some of the points have been flagged up there already. Uh, I, I think in terms of how we deal with young people as well, in terms of services, community policing has probably got better in my own area, but maybe that's not the case in other areas. Uh, I, I also think probably a build-up from the, pan, the pandemic as well, and people getting back at uh, also the whole use of videos and, and glamorising crime in the sense when you've seen people being attacked in their video and, and all these things. But but I think uh, yourselves as, as well is one thing that hasn't been flagged up. And also how we deal with some of the, our younger criminals. Uh, we have a, a juvenile liaison system where which we have younger people getting involved in far more serious crime and they're only coming through that system. I think that has to be looked at as well. Also sentencing and restorative practices too. Okay, can I put it to you, the three of you, and I'll start with your view on this, uh, P.O. Smith, is it's a case of no fear, no respect, no consequences. And if you look at the crimes which have been increasing, they're antisocial, they're, you know, crimes against one another, particularly perpetrated by younger teenagers, assaults, robberies, burglaries, etc. There has to be something that is driving this. And I put it down to the lack of respect and the lack of consequences for these individual actions. Yeah, well, look, to some extent that's actually true. 
Uh, but we have to go to the individual. And I think Alan touched on there earlier on in regards to what he was saying. Like, if you take an individual that's engaged in antisocial behaviour, uh, if you look at their kind of circle of influence, you've got parents, you've got family members, you've got their friends, you've got the school, and then outside of that, then you've got the, uh, the services from the state. So that individual has got to be engaged with by all of those services, not just one of them. And I think uh, Kevin mentioned something about restorative justice there as well. That's a good principle, but, you know, unfortunately it's not uh, really implemented in the country at the moment. The truth is, the Department of Justice are doing a programme in regards to it. But bringing an individual in front of, say, respected members of the community, members of Angada Shikana, you know, politicians or whatever it is, and having that individual kind of uh, express some type of sorrow for what they've done, and get feedback from the individuals who have been impacted by their negative behaviour, their antisocial behaviour. Uh, that's something that has become more commonplace. But but so hang on, hang on, hang on, Pio. In the name of God, do you really think the individuals who engage in this sort of activity would give a damn about coming in front of someone, bowing their head and saying, "I'm sorry, it won't happen yeah, again"? They I, could I not do, care because less. If it's structured, if it's structured in the proper way, it will be done. Because the way it has to be done is this. People have to accept that you, you have to take responsibility for your actions. That's number one. Number two, if somebody commits some type of antisocial behaviour, then they have to be given an alternative, a route through which they can actually understand the impact of their behaviour on, the, on an individual or the community. And if they fail to go down that route, there is the other route, which is the big stick. Well, you just can't have one without the other. That's my opinion on it. But I think, uh, and I've seen people going through uh, the one where they actually kind of tell, get back to people and say, listen, I got it wrong, sorry, I had a bad impact on people. And I've seen when supports are put behind that, that individual that they can change. Okay, Alan, Alan, let me bring you in there. I mean, I know I sound male, pale and stale, but, I mean, this is a societal problem. It doesn't happen just in marginalised area. It affects every facet of society. To, to, so to suggest that, you know, we need intervention at an early stage for what I call privileged individuals is almost laughable because privileged individuals also engage in this sort of crime and this activity. They don't need intervention. They need something a lot stronger than that. I think, again, it, it, it's a combination. And, and just to, the problem we have here is we've good residents in County Mead living in fear. The criminals are not living in fear. If you were at the, the yeah. uh, Joint Police and Committee meeting in Rathouse recently, a woman broke down in tears because she just felt helpless. She'd rang the guards on many occasions and antisocial behaviour in that area, in her state, had got totally out of control. So it's, it's, it's good people that's living in fear. So we need to change that a little bit. If you look at a snapshot of what's happened, just say, in, in my area uh, recently, just on Sunday night there, there was two arson attacks uh, in the town in, in Navan on the Royal Mead and on Chekhov's. You know, two businesses terribly affected uh, by COVID. And just wanton vandalism, now that could have turned into a tragic event. And it feels like people living in Navan, they feel like it's getting lawless, that it's unsafe to walk on the streets. I was talking to a... a colleague in, in the MBRU union recently. In the last three weeks alone, Alan, there was a bus driver repeatedly punched in, in the head on the bus uh, in Dunshockland heading to Navan. There was a female a female uh, driver got her phone robbed. Another female driver got, got verbally, viciously abused. 
and another bus was smashed up on the trim road. And that's the norm. It's accepted because nobody's doing anything about it. Because you're right. So there's a combination. Okay, I can understand where sometimes an individual can get involved with a group and maybe do one thing. And that's where you hope the good intervention would prevent them from going into a life of crime. So it's a combination of trying to you know, work with these people and Again, on the buses, we need traffic police. They've been calling out for for years, and, and it needs to be done. And Helen McEntee lives in our county, the Justice Minister. The Justice Minister herself did ask uh, the, um, she did ask the Garda Commission, Drew Harris, just recently, to look again at the use of ASPOs and how they are used. We need to look at everything, the judicial system, the sentencing, the police and on the streets, but the community as well. We all have a role to play, parents as well. But yes, there needs to be consequences for okay. people. And the problem is, it's it's the good citizens of, of County Mead and the rest of the country that's living in fear of, of the criminals. Kevin, let me bring you in there that's because the you, you have, you've experience of restorative justice. Has it worked? Yeah, it, it works to a certain degree. Uh, and we've been we've involved in a number of cases where it has worked in terms of it's been uh, along more the, the lines of mediation where there's been young people fighting each other, and uh, we, we we've sat them down and, and worked with them, and, and it has worked. I, I I agree that it doesn't work on every level. I think there's people that go beyond restorative practices. Damage is done with them probably at an early stage. You're dealing with generational crime. They've witnessed horrific things happening at home. Do you know what I mean, I, I, sadly for me, I can you, you see the predictable uh, scenarios coming along where you see certain families and you see young people coming from their families and they're going down the same lane, the same track that that their parents had gone down to. But another thing I would just flag up as well is the whole thing of of uh, people seem to think as well they can get away with crime. Uh, you would see an awful lot more things. It's not. It's not. It's people are getting used to the norm of actually seeing a fight in town during the day. That would have been something years ago. You would have seen it night time. Now it's during the day. It's outside the post office. It's outside the bank. It could be anywhere. Hmm. Um, our office is facing the courthouse. You would often see fights there and, and arguments outside. You. Uh, I was coming into a, a function Sunday morning and there was a fight outside uh, a, a garage at eleven o'clock in the morning. Four fellas fighting with a bottle of wine, and and uh, it, it, these things are now the norm. People drive past them sometimes then and look at look at these things. So uh, I, it is a societal thing, and and we have to look at all of these things. We have to whether it be restorative justice, whether it be uh, cracking down harder on, on looking at the whole juvenile liaison system as well, and looking at all these different things. It's not just one. Uh, but but we need to be in terms of the JPCs. We probably have to be meeting more regular. We probably have to look at the structure of them as well. Okay. Well, let me, let me ask you about that, uh, Pio, in relation to the JPCs. What do they actually achieve? Are they nothing more than a talking shop to exchange ideas and look at possible solutions to potential problems? They're a talking shop, in my opinion. That's all they are. They're not fit for purpose, and they need to be totally uh, redesigned. Uh, I mean, you meet what three or four times a year, and it's very difficult to actually uh, get follow-up in relation to what was implemented, what was achieved, all that type of stuff. You know, in fairness, the guards do have that, uh, a significant piece of work in regards to them. But uh, I think the community should be more involved in them. And I think that certainly from the council perspective, the legislation should be changed nationally to uh, give it more teeth in regards to all of the uh, various points that we can look at over a five-year term and see then after five years, Rob, how much of those points are implemented, what change is taking place. It just doesn't happen at the moment. Uh, but it, it definitely needs to change, in my opinion. Alan, what are the guards saying privately? Are they exasperated by virtue of the level of, 
you know, violence and assaults that are going on, that they just feel they're, you know, climbing a mountain that's that's getting steeper and steeper? I, I don't think they're exasperated. I mean, I, I, I would disagree with my uh, colleague there in the sense that I, I don't think the joint policing committees are a talking shop. I think they can be improved. Um, of course, the police would be frustrated. I mean, when you do... When you do call, uh, you know, the police uh, attention to anti-social behaviour, and we call 999 and we wait for an hour and a half for a car to turn up, that's not because two policemen are sitting in the station watching the telly, Alan. That's, that's because they haven't got the resources to fight crime in, in the way that they would like to. And again, you go back to resources, and you probably go to the, the, the judiciary as well, in the sense that all the work that does go in by a guard to bring... A, a criminal to court and then to see them maybe walk out the door five minutes later I served I served as a guard of reserve for four years in Kells myself and, and I've driven to the state or to Mountjoy prison with prisoners who were just signed into the prison and were actually back home in Kells before we got back home because they were released straight away there was no beds in the prison So it goes back to my point no no consequences for actions carried out yeah, by these yeah. individuals That's the frustration that's the frustration the guards are doing the job but, like you say, when they go to court and see what's happening in the courtroom, when they, you know, it's not their fault that it takes them an hour and a half, like I previously said, that's because the lack of resources they were given. I mean, again, when, when I worked in Kells for four years, I had a guard of reserve. There was time that we had to cover a used district with only one car available to us. And that situation was the same in Navan. So, again, that's down to resources. We need to increase them, and we need to do it very, very quickly. So what's your view then, Kevin, in relation to the role that the Gardaí are playing? I mean, they're obviously doing their job enforcing the law as they should be doing, but because of resources, they're perhaps constrained to do things that they want to do or will have to prioritise certain situations. Is that the case? Is that what you see happening? Yeah, I think so. I would have fairly good rapport with it. We probably had one of the best community policing uh, services that we've had in a long time. We have them there at the moment, so that's going well. Uh, yeah, I think they would definitely be crying out for more resources and to get more active within the community as well. I also think in terms of their stock for cars at different times and, and different points and, and not being able to attend uh, or cover the ground that they want to be able to cover the ground. So I, I think definitely services is, is one but uh, and, and also, uh, which has been raised as well in terms of the judiciary, probably not being backed up by or being undermined by the judiciary when you're bringing people in there and then they're walking out, you know, and they're basically giving two, two, two fingers back up to, to guards. And that's very demoralising for the Gardaí. And Gardaí have to go out and live amongst these people as well. Don't forget that. And we've had a number of, uh, in the last, say, number of years where there's been instances of attacks on guards at their homes as well. So these are all things that, again, it's that crime is, is, is getting more more and more braver in a sense and criminals are getting more braver, they get more younger too. Your average crime gang boss now is, is, is would have been in their far, probably in their 40s 30 years ago. Now they're probably in their early 20s, late teens. And this is, as I say, it's a societal thing. And uh, But in terms of the guards, my view of guards locally here in the dock, uh, community policing would be excellent okay. uh, they would definitely need more resources Before we wrap this up I'm going to put a question to each of you I just want a brief response to it and it's a, a phrase I used yesterday but a phrase that should be noted within the context of the law but it's the short sharp shock should we have measures in place uh, underpinned by legislation that will allow us to operate a tuffer regime when it comes to sensing, uh, sentencing and policing, Pio. 
Yeah, I'd agree with that to some extent, absolutely. Uh, I mean, like everyone was touched on the piece where people are brought in front of the courts and it's very difficult to get a prosecution. And even for serious crime, it's very difficult to get a prosecution. Like, in terms of the guards, they have a fair idea about who the people are in regards to who's causing problems around anti-social behaviour in various towns around the country. And they know who's doing the, the, the serious crime as well. But it's getting over that line and getting the prosecutions through. That's where the difficult uh, issue is. And, of course, there's reasons for that too, the safeguards in regards to it. But, you know, who speaks for the victims? I mean, sometimes I feel that the, the victims in this country of antisocial behaviour and serious crime are, are unrepresented. OK. Uh, they're, vo- they're voiceless. And, and that's, the, that's the cohort of people that we have to focus on. OK, Alan, your view on the short, sharp shock? The simple answer to you, that, that is yes. Uh, of course we could deal with that. But we need more community supports as well. It needs to go alongside, alongside community supports and youth services as well being improved. Um, so if that was all done together, yes, we, we, we can achieve a better place. I mean, again, how, how does Finland do it? How does Denmark do it? How does Spain do it? They have much lower crime levels than us, so they must be doing something right. Well, I can tell you in Spain, and I've I've uh, caused to witness this on many occasions, where they do not take any nonsense. The Guard of Seville there, they pull the baton or pull the gun and then ask questions later, so maybe that is something got to do with it, but that's for another conversation. I, I, but, I witnessed that in Spain <laughs> as well. I agree with you, yeah, yeah. But Kevin, your view on that? On that? Yeah, to a certain degree, yeah, and with certain individuals. And I'd also like to look at the bail conditions as well. We have people who continue to go out, uh, they're picked off for one crime, they're let back out on bail, and they know they'll probably get two years for that. So they can basically run amok for the next 16 months before they're up in court. So bail conditions is probably one that, that we could look at in, ter- in terms of, of, and I'd like to see a study of that in terms of, of the people who, who continue to break or, or rack up crimes while they're on bail. I think that's something that we should focus in on. Okay, very good, gentlemen. We leave it there. Councillor P.O. Smith. Uh, We're also joined by Councillor Alan Laws and Councillor Kevin Meenan. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. The Catholic Bishop of Kerry to apologise for a homily delivered at a Sunday Mass in County Kerry in which a priest slammed transgenderism and homosexuality as sinful. In his homily at St Mary's Church, retired priest Father Sean Sheehy also hid out at the HSC for handing out condoms to young people. A number of parishioners walked out during that particular homily and expressed their utter concern shock more than anything else as a result of that. And Father Tim Hazelwood of the Association of Catholic Priests joins us this morning. Um, Tim, thanks for joining us this morning. It's not not a great time for the Catholic Church. I think it's important though to emphasise that, you know, everybody's entitled to their view or opinions in relation to any particular matter. That's why we have uh, freedom of speech, albeit with caveats to protect the good name of individuals. But to use the pulpit, it's not great, is it? No, it's not. It's, It's appalling, really. And like the sad thing is that if the gospel of last Sunday, uh, which he should be speaking about, is, was the story of Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus, who was a notorious sinner, who a short man who climbed a tree and Jesus called him down and went to his house, and how the man changed his life. It's a beautiful story, you know, of love and forgiveness and tolerance and an openness to people's ability to change, all of that. And this man uses... His opportunity, because just to give it, put it in context, I don't know the man. I've never met him, and he's retired for many years from from an United States. Why I don't know, because he's not that old. And the parish priest of Listowel went away on a, a pilgrimage with some parishioners, 
So he asked in Kerry Diocese there's a huge shortage. So uh, the man was probably delighted to get someone to fill in. Well, 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 from, yeah, well in, in fairness, from what mm-hmm. you have told me, there's already fl- red flags being raised that this obviously is an individual who has had form prior to this mm. and he's known for probably, you know, these extreme views. So why the hell was he put up in charge of, you know, r- running this particular ceremony? Well, the problem is, like, it's like I'm sure now during uh, this week, when people are off school and somebody goes missing at work, you try and get someone to fill in. And that's the reality of the situation in the church at the moment. Like, we are very short. In Kerry Diocese, it's, it's at an extreme. There's lads covering two and three parishes. And, and the parish priest wants to go to, for a pilgrimage. He would have been better off if there was no mass because of what this man did, the damage that he has done to people. Can, can I ask you, what, what's your own view on transgenderism, LGBTQI, you know, handing out condoms or whatever? Well, it's, it, oh, I suppose, it, it's a deeper issue than just do I think it's right and wrong, because that's the way people have, have made debates like this. And if you look at what's happening in the United States, in Sweden, now you have a very right-wing government gone in, uh, in this, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, the same, and that is that... I'm right, you're wrong. There's very little tolerance. Or, and even in our own country, and I think the press have a bit to do with this, it's very aggressive. It's about um, confrontational. Instead of listening, engaging, trying to tolerate and, and get a consensus. The Pope, Pope Francis, within the church at the moment, there's a, a great movement called Synodality going on. And a, 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 a process of listening has happened and a document from Ireland was sent to Rome as from all the other countries in the world and in that document it reflected the views of Catholic people which was very tolerant of transgender, of gay people and it, it expressed a wish that more would be done to include and be more tolerant. Okay, so what are we saying that we are losing our ability to engage in social discourse around these, and let's call them what they are, they're, they're controversial in terms yes. of they can polarise opinion, but, you know, yes. on both sides there's blame here because if you raise issues in relation to whether it's transgenderism, homosexuality or whatever, you're immediately then put into a particular corner and there can be consequences for you in relation to what I call the cancel culture. So both sides have to engage Absolutely. in discourse on this. Absolutely. And I think that's, I think the lesson is that we need a more tolerant and a better maybe um, way of expressing ourselves than this, what you've just uh, um, expressed there, that you're put into camps and we won't talk to them and all that kind of stuff, you know. And it, But it's, it's a very painful long process that you sit down you discuss you educate yourself and that's part of what synodality is that you discern you pray you discern the will of god do you you think jesus would condemn the way that that man spoke i don't think he he would he met people throughout his life and we have the examples in the gospel where he was no he, he wouldn't hang on a second he wouldn't condemn what he had to say because we go back to freedom of speech but he probably would condemn him using the vehicle of the catholic church to push an agenda that doesn't necessarily you know sit well in present day catholic church circles he would i would like to, i don't think he would be too tolerant of it you know and i think the majority of priests would not be happy some would and that's the reality of society. There are some people who see life, who see the human person, who see sexuality as black and white. And 
this man reflected that thinking. Do you think it will have an impact on the Catholic Church or is it just one of those blips or will people be saying, oh, sure, there you go, look, that's more of it from the Catholic Church yeah, again. Yeah, I think that's the sad thing. For me, it's the hurt that's caused to families and to people who don't fit into our black and white system. Like, here we go again, hurting people, and that is scandalous. When we see the good work that so many priests do, are you, you afraid? Are you afraid to express your real view and opinions on matters for fear of being <laughs> castigated or being marginalised? Camille, I wouldn't be speaking to radio programs <laughs> if I was afraid, would I? <laughs> but do you do you feel somewhat constrained because of the pulpit that you'd like perhaps to go a little bit further than you would ordinarily go? No, like that's the amazing thing. Things have changed. Ten years ago, I would have been terrified, and sadly, one of our members, Tony Flannery, who expressed views that um, are very mainstream views now, is out of ministry because of that. There is a lot more tolerant, and because of Pope Francis. Pope Francis wants us to discuss these difficult issues, but in a very uh, understanding and caring way. But we clearly cannot do that, and evidence has shown that time and time again. And you pointed to the fact of where we've seen we've seen the rise of right wing governments Mm. across Europe, and that is not a healthy state to be in. No, it's not. It's not. And and you see, in Brazil, would he accept the will of the people? That was shocking. You know, the very same as the United States, would he accept the will of the people? In other words, and it's all about power. It's about you. You do what I want you to do, and that's worrying. That is worrying. It says more about the individuals who put them into power. I mean, look at what's happening in Israel. There's a very tight margin there to see Benjamin Netanyahu coming back with his right-wing Likud party after a man who was castigated and he was involved in um, nefarious activities whilst in government financial nefarious activities, I should say. So what does that tell you? Well, it's worrying. That's what it tells me. It's worrying. And uh, what what disappoints me is that I think in the last number of years the church has come so far like I think there is an awful lot more tolerance and I see it in the amount of gay people and people of difference who come to church now and who and I think we're moving towards where maybe sacramentally and in other ways Well have you, sorry for cutting across it but have mm. you talked to, to gay people, have you talked to transgender people, I mean what is their view on the church, what is the view on the stance they have in relation to the, the life that they want to live? Well I, I, it's what amazes me after all that was said and done over the years that I know, uh, there's one couple at the moment that I'm, um, that I'm I know and um, they're very much church people, they're very much God people and faith people, and why they stay, I don't know, you know, when, when the language and stuff that was used. But I, I am very confident that that's going to change because within the kind of the educational side of and scriptural understanding side of things, there's a lot of discussions going on that will, I think, inform uh, the teaching in the future. Okay, It'll just, just briefly, Tim, I'm running out of time on this, but okay. where does the future of the Catholic Church sit? when you find yourself in a position where you can't get priests, where you find yourself in a position that people, particularly the younger people, are walking away from the church, and those who were brought up in the Catholic ethos and religion, who had to live through what came out as a result of the abuse, that they turned their backs on the church. It is a sad, sorry mess that seems to be going nowhere fast. Well, usually from that comes something new, and that's why I would have great hope 
Like the reality is that is gone. Dead, finished. That is over. So something new, led by people, not by priests, by, you know, the people of God. And uh, it has happened before, and it will happen again. Like, uh, if, if, if you have faith, you believe that God is with us, and I think God will guide okay. us in a new and hopefully a better direction. Father Tim Hazelwood of the Association of Catholic Priests, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Garthy, you're investigating all the circumstances surrounding the discovery of a body of a man yesterday in County Monaghan. The discovery was made yesterday morning around about 8 o'clock in the grounds of a hotel just outside Carrick Macross. For the latest on this, Ronan Gargan, journalist with the Northern Sound Radio based in Cavan Monaghan, joins us. Ronan, thanks for taking our call. What can you tell us? Because information was pretty much thin on the ground late last night. Presumably things have moved a little since then. Good morning, Alan. Yes, indeed. Yes, it's, it's still thin on the ground as a sense of obviously the investigation is carrying on today, that post-mortem that will take place we expect during this, this afternoon and evening. So obviously Gardaí are keeping a very open mind about this discovery that was made, as you said, about 8 a.m. yesterday morning at the entrance to the M Hotel, formerly known as the Tracy's Hotel, and obviously even further known as the Oasis Hotel. So a very well-known hotel along a busy main road there between Carrick Macross and Kingscourt at about five kilometres outside of Carrick Macross. Now, Garthy, as you say, are keeping an open mind on this, but the results of the post-mortem will obviously dictate the uh, nature of that particular investigation in terms of it'll give it focus. But but they have spoken to a number of people, as I understand it, already. Yes, indeed. And... The thing about it is, I suppose what's, what's different here, I suppose, is the head injuries, the suspicious head injuries that the body was found to have had. Obviously, that's what they will be examining. But also, what's even crucial here was there was an altercation, we understand, on Halloween night um, at the hotel. Gardy were called, and we, we believe that this man was involved in that altercation and this incident. So, I suppose that's probably what they're obviously mm-hmm. facing there information on so far. Now we do know that the man is a, believed to be 25 and originally from Nigeria and we also, we've, we've also found out that he has arrived in, at the hotel in the last seven days. Are we correct in saying that the hotel is used to house um, asylum seekers and people seeking sanctuary from other countries? That is right Alan. At the, we believe currently there's 124 asylum seekers in the 35 rooms that are supplied at the hotel. Now, has there been any Garda conference around this and presumably the Garda or, or are they seeking information in relation to potential witnesses or information pertaining to a crime if it took place? Yes, yeah, as I said, obviously today we'll determine what, what way the Garda investigation will go. At, at present, as you said, the Garda are keeping such an open mind that obviously they'd, they'd be interested in hearing from anyone. Uh, about this discovery, as I said to you, at the entrance of the of the hotel, just literally on the verge of the road, you're talking about 15 feet off the main road, like at the pier of the gate, um, and that's really all that's known okay. at present. And has a technical examination been carried out, or is that continuing, uh, or is it ongoing? That, that was carried out, Alan, in the afternoon yesterday and into evening. Gardaí left the hotel at about six o'clock, and uh, obviously the hotel kind okay. of returned back to somewhat normal. Okay, Ronan, thank you so much for that. Ronan Gargan, journalist with Northern Sound Radio based in Kevin Monaghan with the very latest on the discovery of that uh, particular body and we will bring you up to date on any developments on that as they occur 
over the next uh, few hours. Now, the Irish Farmers Association is calling for a meeting with Justice Minister and local TD Helen McEntee to increase the resources to tackle rural crime. The association says farmers across the country are dealing with the recurring problem of gangs of men with lurcher dogs coming onto private lands and threatening livestock. It follows an emergency meeting in Dunor earlier this month, which heard illegal hunting and trespassing are growing problems in County Meath. Well, joining us this morning is Barry Carey, Crime Prevention Officer with the IFA. Uh, Barry, thanks for taking our call. Perhaps you could just give us an insight into the nature of the particular crimes and the seriousness of those crimes that are taking place in rural areas. Good morning, Alan. Thanks. Yeah, um, it has been an ongoing issue for a number of years um, on relation to lands, um, farms and, and lands, and uh, these particular groups arrive with dirty dogs. They they go hunting predominantly hares, and, uh, which is a, a protected species uh, under the Wildlife Act. And then uh, they go across lands where this time of year, you're talking about in... in uh, lambing and calving in, in lamb and calf and uh, the damage that is done they frighten the, uh, the animals and um, when, when they're approached by the landowner or the farmer uh, hostility um, aggression and assaults have taken place very recently there's been a serious assault in Tipperary uh, which necessitated a large community meeting and there were up to 600 people there again in, in, in I attended a very large meeting in Limerick last week and in Galway and I was in Denor two weeks ago and it's not just one county, it's it's all over the country. There's this specific issue. And, uh, you know, there's criminal damage done to, to property, to fences, to gates. There's uh, people blocking gates by leaving cars outside it. And um, it causes, it, it, besides the nuisance, it's the danger to the, the livestock and the herd. And then there's the danger to the individual who remonstrates and protests and asks them to leave the properties. So you're looking for a meeting with the Minister, presumably to get more resources, boots on the ground, as it were, Garthy out, you know, doing random patrols or regular patrols, and also looking at security options that farmers and people in rural communities can undertake themselves. Well, the security part of the farms is, is you know, is, is the cartilage and it's the, the, the farm itself and the farmhouse and that. And, and alarms and technology yeah. and cameras, etc. is fine. But we're talking about out in open spaces, you know, where there, there are particularly large-scale properties. And uh, these people come on, and, of course, the damage has, is done. Um, the damage is done, to the, as I mentioned, to, to the various aspects of the property. And, and what IFA have been calling for through our Deputy President, Brian Rush, is for an increase in guard patrolling. Um, we successfully had one in, in North County Dublin in the last couple of years where large WhatsApp groups uh, in the communities. Very did, well it, did it work? It worked exceptionally well. And uh, in, in the absence of, of uh, the text alerts, some text, some areas have fantastic text alerts and, and they do the business. But in this particular area, it was a rapid reporting system okay. and, and it worked exceptionally well. Just briefly, and, because we're, we're running out of time, Barry, have you got any indication from the Minister of the Department that a meeting will be held in order to discuss well, your uh, concerns? Our, our, our Deputy President, Brian Rush, called for the meeting uh, only on a Friday, so, you know, with Bank Holiday, we, we should have a response. Perhaps, I haven't spoke to the office this morning, but I, perhaps there's, their response has come in already. Okay, we, super. We are expecting... Barry Carey, Crime Prevention Officer with the IFA. Thank you for talking to us this morning. We leave it there. We've run out of time. Apologies if I didn't get to all your comments, but we did get to, I'd say, about 95% of them. That's it from me. Mike's back tomorrow. I will talk to you again soon. Take care. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.